You're listening to The Bob Zadek Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Bob Zadek Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show in all of radio. Thank you so much for listening this Sunday morning. Well, with with us being inundated day and night uh, by the health crisis, the claimed health crisis caused by uh, COVID-19, of course, with us being inundated daily with new cases and with deaths and with hospitalizations, with us being inundated by claims, true or not, about the politicalization of the preparation manufacture and sale of a vaccine with us being inundated about the politicalization of the lockdown. In other words, all of our news these days is crowded out by medical slash economic information. The economic information is a direct result of the medical situation we are living in. All of a sudden, us Americans are paying a lot more attention to the whole process of manufacture, distribution, sale, pricing of prescription and non-prescription drugs. What a perfect time for this morning's guest, uh, Jeff, Dr. Jeffrey Singer, to have published an important paper over at Cato. Jeffrey and his co-author, Michael, uh, Michael Cannon, also at Cato, introduce us all to the not-so-complex but fascinating history of prescription drug availability, sale, and use in America. And what a fascinating history it is. It occurred to me that all of us, most of us, probably all of us, use prescription drugs. We buy them. We acquire them uh, from our pharmacies and the like. We acquire over-the-counter drugs from our pharmacies and from our supermarkets. But probably none of us have given much thought to the whole concept of prescription drugs and the use of prescriptions. When you think about it, as you will during this hour, prescription drugs are just another aspect of the permission-full society we live in, where so much of the operation of our daily lives requires the permission of a government official. We have, it's been around for so long, we sort of take it for granted. But should we be required to seek permission from anybody to put something into our body? That is this morning's question. I dare say many of you will change your opinion about an hour from now with to help us understand this fascinating, complex subject of prescription drug use in America. I'm happy to welcome back to the show Dr. Jeffrey Singer. Uh, Jeffrey uh, writes over at Cato. He is a senior fellow at Cato, and he works in the Department of Health Policy Studies. And as I said, he has just published with Michael Cannon, Drug Reformation and Government's Power to require prescriptions. Uh, Jeff, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. And, you know, as you were mentioning the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, it just uh, came to my mind that a perfect sort of lead-in setup for what we want to talk about today is many of your listeners probably know just a few days ago the FDA gave emergency use authorization for the first ever at-home self-administered test for COVID. But they said that you can't get it without a prescription and a doctor is not to prescribe it for you unless you have symptoms. So here's this thing where you could finally take it at home without going to a doctor's office and risk contaminating other people or getting con- contaminated. But in order to get it at home, you, you got, in order to take it at home, you've got to get a, a permission slip from a doctor. And he's not allowed to grant you permission unless you're symptomatic. And then on top of that, we just hear even recently that the reason why this pandemic is so difficult to control is because about 40 to 50% of people 
have no symptoms and they're spreading it around unknowingly. And here's an opportunity for people who are conscious of that fact to, to test themselves to see if even though they have no symptoms, do they have COVID, but they're not allowed to because they have to get a permission slip and they have to have symptoms to get the permission slip. This, 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 so this is a perfect lead-in to what we want to talk about today. Now, Jeff, without getting sidetracked onto COVID, but you piqued my curiosity. What is the rationale, if there is one, behind requiring a prescription to do something as benign as testing to see if you have COVID-19? How could, since the FDA is designed, one would think, to protect us from doing bad things to our body, how could testing for COVID-19 be a bad thing, and therefore, what's the reason for the prescription? I have no idea. There's no prescription required for the at-home pregnancy test or an at-home HIV test, but for an at-home COVID test, it's designed for at-home use. And in fact, the FDA's memo actually stated that when you get the prescription from the doctor, you can still do it yourself. The doctor does not is not necessary to provide the test on you. So then why get permission? Uh, that's just, you know, one example of how, you know, the government is standing in the way of us being able to take care of ourselves, m- make our own decisions about uh, testing ourselves and medicating ourselves. So uh, that's just a, uh, the most recent and most, you know, timely example of what we go into in great detail in our white paper, Drug Reformation. Now, thanks. Now, Jeff, just most of the people probably everybody listening to the show, has been born into a system of prescriptions as a requirement for us to buy and to administer to ourselves certain drugs. But in the history of our country, prescriptions are relatively new. So tell us briefly, uh, when did uh, the reliance upon prescriptions as governing who can buy what medication. When did all of this start, and for what reason? Yeah, actually, this started in, in the requirement started in 1951. Um, prior to that time, it was widely recognized that every human being has the right to self-medicate. And uh, the right to self-medicate is sort of a corollary of the right to informed consent. So, for example, you can't perform a procedure on me or make me take a medicine without my informed consent. You, even if I'm making a terrible decision not listening to you, um, it, it's understood by everyone that you have to respect my decision either way. A corollary of that is if I want to medicate myself or perform a test on myself, I shouldn't need your consent for me to do that. That's just as well my right. Um, and in fact, back in, in colonial times, Thomas Jefferson was speaking to a group about freedom of speech. And he, to explain that point, he said, freedom of speech is so sacred, it's as sacred as the right to self-medicate. So this was kind of uh, consi- considered in those days so self-evident that he was using that as an example of how important the right to free speech is. And now we've come completely 180 degrees. So nowadays, I have to explain to people that the right to self-medicate is as sacred as the right to free speech. Um, so what happened was, up until the 1950s, um, if you, even though evidence shows that the overwhelming majority of people who took medications sought the advice of an expert like a doctor, but pharmacists are also experts, and people would go into a pharmacy, and um, they oftentimes would consult the pharmacist and ask what the pharmacist recommends, but they would ultimately, at the end of the day, make their own decision. They may have carried with them a prescription from their doctor, which was the doctor's recommendation, and sometimes the pharmacist would look at the prescription and say, well, could I suggest something else and make the case for it? And the individual would, at the end of the day, make the decision. So this prescription wasn't a permission slip. It was a recommendation. Um, and this was going along fine. And then in uh, 1938, there was uh, a, a, a huge catastrophe occurred. It was called uh, the sulfonilamide uh, scandal. So sulfonilamide, a sulfur drug, was the first ever antibiotic ever invented. And it was a miracle because people were dying of infectious diseases so often. And uh, in 1938, the company Massengill developed uh, a, an oral elixir form so that people who couldn't take pills or children could then uh, take it because it was an elixir. And um, unfortunately, 
the chemist who developed it used as the solvent for the sulfonilamide diethylene glycol, which is a chemically related to ethylene glycol or antifreeze, and it was poisonous. So there were 105 deaths due to taking sulfonilamide, uh, and 30, 34 of them were in children. And, uh, and of course, this was, this was terrible, and uh, this led to the uh, Congress passing the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938. Up until then, the only, uh, the only uh, uh, act in, in, in effect was the, the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, which basically uh, created what became the Food and Drug Administration. And they were just basically, uh, it was almost like a truth, truth in the advertising act. Uh, any product that was sold was tested to make sure it's what it said it was and didn't have any uh, uh, adulterants or intoxicants that could hurt people. That it was whatever the, the manufacturer said was in there was in, was in there. That's all that the FDA was dealing with at that time. But after 1938, uh, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act said that from this point forward, any new product that any manufacturer wants to bring to market has to go through a testing process until we're persuaded that it's safe to, to be sold to the public. Um, and uh, uh, anything currently in use is exempted from this. So by that time, aspirin was exempt, insulin was exempt, because that was around since around the time of World War I. And that's why to this day there are a couple of types of insulin you can get over the counter in, in, in the United States. Um, and... Uh, but, but that, from that point forward, you had to persuade the FDA that it was safe or they won't let you market it. And um, if you market it, if the manufacturer decided he wa- that they wanted to manu- market it over the counter, they had to make the labeling clear enough that a person with a very rudimentary education could understand it. They ha- the FDA had to approve the labeling. If they had chosen to make it by prescription only, which was a, a, the decision of the manufacturer, then they wouldn't have to satisfy the labeling requirements because that would become the responsibility of the prescriber. And even before 1938, there were manufacturers deciding as a proprietary decision that we want to make this available by prescription only because we think this is somebody might be able to use it the wrong way and hurt themselves, and we don't want the liability. And so they would, um, you know, su- supply the pharmacies under the under the stipulation that the pharmacies couldn't sell that product to someone without a prescription. That was already a private sector decision. Um, so uh, the, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, actually the, the framers of it, if you look at the congressional record, said there's nothing about this act that is in any way intended to infringe upon a person's right to self-medicate. It actually used that terminology. Uh, but it, we just want to make self-medication safer. Now, pure libertarians like myself would argue uh, uh, I appreciate you giving me that information that it's safe, but I still, uh, you know, I still uh, uh, re- reserve the right to medicate with it, even if you don't think it's safe. I don't think I should have to have even your permission on that level. But that's as far as it went that, that they just decided it was safe. Well, then by 1951, what was happening was that uh, uh, pharmacists were, and this wouldn't happen today with you know modern technology and barcodes and that kind of thing. Pharmacists would occasionally make the mistake of selling a product to a person uh, over the counter that they realized after the person already left the door uh, that that particular manufacturer of that product wanted a prescription only. Because sometimes, you know, one manufacturer would require prescription only and another manufacturer of the same product wouldn't. So they would confuse it and it was becoming stressful. So uh, most people may not know this, but Senator Hubert Humphrey, who later became vice president, he was a pharmacist before he got into politics. And Congressman Carl Durham of North Carolina was a pharmacist, and they were the kind of go-to people for the pharmacy lobby. So they complained to, to, to Humphrey and Durham, and the Durham-Humphrey Amendment to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act was passed in 1951 that said from this point forward, we're taking this decision out of the hands of the private sector, and the Food and Drug Administration is going to decide from this point forward what is going to be over-the-counter and what is going to be prescription only. And if... if, if uh, uh, a drug that is originally approved for over-the-counter, uh, for, for prescription-only use, if later on the manufacturer wants to reclassify it for over-the-counter, it, 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 it's spelled out in writing a process that the manufacturer had to go through to get the FDA to, to approve whether or not the drug can now be moved to over-the-counter. Example, for example, uh, ibuprofen, Advil, that was, uh, uh, that was, that came out in 1974 as a prescription-only drug. It took 10 years later, it was moved to over-the-counter at the approval of the FDA. 
1984. So that, that's an example of how drugs can go from prescription only to over-the-counter. And we can talk about that more later. But basically, since... Jeff, let me just... Let me just... Jeff, let me just interrupt to bring the audience up to, up to date where you are in your story. In 1951, the change was profound. Up until 1951, the decision upon what drugs you could take um, was between you and your physician as to whether your physician would write a prescription. Um, the manufacturers could require prescriptions if they want, but basically the decision was to a considerable extent yours and perhaps your physicians. After 1951, a profound change happened, and that basic decision about medication was taken from the physician and the patient to the government. Is that a fair summary of where we are so far? Yeah, actually, to be more precise, the, 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 the decision was always the patients. The patients would consult their physicians mo most commonly. But even if the physician wrote a prescription, the patient sometimes can get another opinion from, let's say, the pharmacist. And then at the end of the day, the patient would decide what to take, not the physician. But overwhelming majority of time, and this is reasonable, people would want the advice of a person who's an expert, and they would consult the, the physician. So, so, but that decision now, uh, a substantial portion of decision-making as to what drugs you could take on your own decision was removed uh, and was placed in the hands of the FDA and the government in general. So that's post-1951. Right, and that changed everything because that suddenly, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners are very acutely aware of, that changed the decision from being one not only uh, of, it stopped respecting, of course, the autonomy of, of the individual patient, but it also made all decisions going forward subject to politics because now you have all different special interest groups and you have political concerns that influence whether the Food and Drug Administration is going to make something that is currently prescription only over the counter. And, uh, and vice versa. And also we point out in our paper um, that contrary to what people think, it actually didn't increase safety. Uh, Sam Peltzman, who uh, did a lot of, as an economist at the University of Chicago, did a lot of work on this, uh, actually showed uh, empirically that since that requirement went into effect, um, the, the percentage of drug poisonings, you know, drug poor drug reactions, that kind of thing, actually increased uh, relative then to the time before the prescription requirement was put in place by, uh, by the FDA. And there are a lot of different reasons for it. Uh, bear in mind that, when, and, uh, as an example, when the uh, sulfonilamide uh, disaster occurred, uh, out of those uh, 105 deaths, 95% of people who died from sulfonilamide were taking it at the doctor's recommendation. And if you look through the records, and we, pr we provide you know, a lot of this in our paper, there were people who were calling the doctor and saying, you know, my, my little girl is getting sicker and sicker. And the doctor would say, okay, then give more sulfonilamide elixir. Double up on it. So they were following the advice of the doctor. These were not people who were doing something reckless to themselves. And uh, there's a lot of empiric evidence, which we go into in our paper, that people tend to be much more willing to trust the expert when they get a, prescri a prescription drug than when they go over the counter. When you go over the counter, you do a lot more due diligence. You start asking a lot of questions. You compare it to the shop. You go up and ask the pharmacist some things. You may go online and do some research, whereas the tendency when a doctor prescribes it just to kind of assume, well, he's the expert. I'm just going to do what he says. I could tell you as a practicing physician, I see this uh, often when I uh, take a history on my patients and I'm trying to get their medication history and they'll uh, say, so what medications do you take? And I'll say, well, I take a blue pill and a black and white striped pill and a, a red pill. And, and what are they for? I don't know. I think one of them is for, for blood pressure and one of them is for uh, cholesterol. Uh, those are the kind of things you'll often get from patients and they don't know what it is. They just know what to do because they're following doctor's orders. On the other hand, uh, if they're going to medicate themselves, they know everything about it. And in, in fact, birth control pills, here's another good example. 
In a hundred, over a hundred countries in this world, you can get them over the counter. Uh, in the United States, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has, uh, for at least the last 15 years, officially encouraged uh, the FDA to make, them, make birth control pills available over the counter. Um, and uh, so is the American Academy of Family Practice. Now, that means something, because uh, if, if the American Academy of OBGYN has it, the, the, they're, they're actually taking an economic hit. They're saying, you don't need to come to me and pay me $150 so I can give you a prescription for birth control pill. You should be able to go get it yourself. And so they're giving up money, so that means something for them to say that. But despite that, it's still uh, prescription-only in this country. And uh, at the University of Washington in Seattle in 2006, there was a really interesting study done where they asked women to, to uh, basically uh, self-screen. They gave them a questionnaire, and they asked them to, to determine, based upon the questionnaire, whether they think they are a good candidate for oral contraception. Because, you know, there are certain uh, contra contraindications, like if you're a smoker, it's more dangerous, you can get blood clots, and there are other things. So what they found was that the women who self-screened were in agreement with uh, professional OBGYN doctors 90% of the time. The 10% of the time that they weren't in agreement is because the doctors were actually more liberal about it. The doctors thought they could take it, and the women thought they shouldn't take it. And, of course, that could mean one of two things. It could mean either that the doctors were reckless or that the women were overly cautious. We don't know actually for sure, but the point is that that's just another illustration of the fact that people tend to be actually much more involved and engaged when they're making the decisions, and there's a tendency for them to uh, surrender judgment and even, in some cases, even knowing what the medications are when it's prescribed by someone, and uh, I'll be the first to admit, doctors make mistakes. Uh, I can't tell you, uh, I'll tell you honestly, for example, and I, 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 I would argue that there's not a single doctor who will deny this. Um, I've, as a surgeon, I've written a prescription here and there for a patient, let's say an antibiotic for an infection, and then I get a phone call from the pharmacist saying, I wrote a, uh, he notices that I wrote a prescription for this uh, infection, and um, this patient is taking uh, a certain drug, let's say, an, an anti-anxiety medication. And I say, yeah, I'm aware of that. And the pharmacist will say, well, I don't know if you're aware, but that particular antibiotic has a terrible interaction with that anti-anxiety agent. So I really don't recommend that you, you prescribe that. And I'll say, you know, I, I wasn't aware of that at all. Well, thank you for letting me know. Because obviously pharmacists are trained professionals who know more about this stuff, usually, than we doctors do. And then the pharmacist would say, so... Uh, uh, what, what, do you, what kind of infection are you treating? Because I could recommend some antibiotics that won't have that interaction. And, and then, of course, after discussion with the pharmacist, I'll change the prescription. So there's a perfect example. This happens all the time. Just because it's prescribed by a doctor doesn't necessarily mean it's not, that, that it's, it's, it's uh, foolproof. There are, you know, the, we doctors don't know every single thing, which is why there are different you know, there's a division of labor. There are different specialists, and pharmacists are very specialized in these kind of things. But uh, so, so just because it's a prescription only doesn't guarantee safety, and there's empiric evidence that it probably makes you less safe. Then there's also a lot of What's evidence we talk about in our paper that it also raises drug prices. Uh, go ahead. Uh, you were going to ask me something. Uh, that's a perfect segue. What's interesting about your paper and what makes it so compelling is that because it's co-authored by you and Michael Cannon over at Cato, you cover both the medical aspects, which we spent most of our time on this morning, that's you, Jeff, and an equal amount of time on the economics, which affect every American, uh, and also you mentioned the political aspects. So something that we have taken for granted as the regulation of pre prescription uh, the use of prescriptions to regulate how people can self-medicate, that that has implications that are profoundly economic and profoundly political. As an example of the political, Jeff, share uh, briefly with our audience the story of Plan B, because that tells us a perfect example of how politics 
when once you empower the government to make these decisions, politics rears its ugly head and interferes with a medical decision and produces a result contrary to the best interests of both Americans. So tell us the story of Plan B, because it is so profoundly political. Okay, that's an excellent example. I, uh, so Plan B is also known as the morning after pill. It's also called emergency contraception. So you could take it, you know, the morning after, and it'll prevent pregnancy. So this was approved by the FDA for prescription only in 1999. And uh, various uh, groups were petitioning the FDA to make it over-the-counter because obviously we were trying to do away with unwanted pregnancies. And it's, it's very safe. You can't, there's no lethal dose. The worst thing that could happen if you take a, an overdose of it is that you'll have severe nausea and you may miss a couple of menstrual periods. Um, that's the worst thing that could happen. So anyway, uh, the, uh, 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 an advisory panel to the FDA in 2003 overwhelmingly recommended that it be made over the counter, uh, which, uh, but uh, this was during the uh, George W. Bush administration, and the Bush administration uh, chose not, their, their FDA over, overruled the advisory panel and chose not to make it over the counter. Finally, uh, after uh, basically a court case, in 2004, the drug, the FDA did make the plan B over the counter, but only for women 17 and up. Then, over the next several years, groups were uh, arguing that it should be available for all ages. Number one, it's not lethal, and number two, you want to prevent unwanted pregnancies in all ages. Um, If you have to get a prescription and you're, let's say, 15 years old, then that may mean that you've got to go to the doctor, which means you have to usually tell your parents and maybe go on their insurance, and maybe you didn't want to tell your parents. So it was not going to be able, just like with the at-home test for COVID, you were not taking full advantage of the, of the, of the benefits of this thing. So um, uh, the, the uh, advisory panel in 2011 overwhelmingly recommended to the FDA that it be available for all ages, and the FDA was about to do so, but Secretary of HHS Sebelius, this is in the Obama administration now, overruled it. And we, we actually have video of this in, in our white paper. Uh, President Obama famously during a press conference when asked why, why the HHS won't allow the FDA to do this, because the FDA wanted to. Uh, said, I don't want uh, little, you know, girls buying uh, the morning after pill along with bubble gum and batteries. Uh, very famously, he's being you know, kind of clever, he thought. Um, so finally, it went to court, and a federal judge in 2013 uh, ordered it to be available over the counter for all ages. And one of the arguments made by the, the proponents of it was, you know, uh, a 12-year-old could buy a lethal dose of Tylenol over the counter with no questions asked. Uh, yet, they can't buy a non-lethal box of Plan B. Um, so it took 14, a 14-year journey for this drug that was really designed to prevent unwanted teen pregnancies to finally be able to do its job because of politics, because all of the medical groups and all of the advisory boards for the FDA and the FDA itself eventually were all saying it should be over-the-counter for all ages, but it was overruled ultimately by, for political reasons. That's just an, uh, uh, you know, one example. The same thing could be said for birth control pills. In our paper, which, by the way, if, if your listeners want to access it, all you have to do is go to Cato.org slash drug reformation. The power of our paper is drug reformation. So Cato.org slash drug reformation will take you to it. Um, most countries have uh, emulated our FDA system, yet in there, and we have a table of this showing uh, examples in several countries. There are drugs that are prescription only in our country, but are over-the-counter in other countries that are just as developed, just as advanced, and have similar FDAs. You know, they have different names for them. So, for example, in the United States, insulin, there's only two types of insulin that you can still get over-the-counter. That's uh, Humulin and Novo Novolin. That's also called regular and NPH insulin. And like I said, that's because they were available already before the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, so they're grandfathered. So you could actually, most people don't know this, but you can go into a pharmacy and go up to the pharmacy counter and request to purchase it. A lot of times the pharmacy tech may say you need a prescription, and then just ask to speak to the pharmacist. The pharmacist will know you don't. 
And, for example, uh, uh, Walgreens markets it, I think, under the brand name Rely On. Different, you know, CVS probably has a different brand name for it. But you can get it over the counter, but only that. Every other type of insulin, you need prescription only. And the over-the-counter is so much cheaper. Up until the late 70s, that the NPH and regular was the only insulin that was really around. So it's not like, uh, even though it's more inconvenient than a lot of the modern uh, versions because you have to check the blood sugar more frequently and, and, and sometimes take, take the insulin a couple of times a day, it still is available and cheap. Now, in Canada, all insulin is over-the-counter. Uh, and the same is true uh, for Singapore and for Tanzania. Uh, in the United States, there's one state that doesn't allow even that uh, grandfathered insulin over counter. That's Indiana. Indiana passed uh, a law saying you need a prescription there for it. And it's kind of, I think there's, I think there's a little irony to that because the major manufacturer of that insulin is Eli Lilly, which is in Indianapolis. So I think it's kind of interesting that that's the state where you need a prescription. Uh, you take uh, naloxone, the overdose antidote for opioid overdose, which is now the, the FDA is encouraging everybody to get it available. So in this country, you still require a prescription for it, but it's over-the-counter in Australia, in Italy, in Canada, uh, but, uh, but in, in, uh, and in France. But in the United States, you have to have a prescription. Now, in every state, they've kind of done a workaround because of the overdose crisis. So if you, your state has a chief medical director who happens to be a physician licensed to practice medicine in that state, then that physician is issuing what's called the standing order. So the, basically a physician is saying, I'll be the doctor giving the order. All pharmacists in this oh state are advised. If a person comes up to the counter wanting naloxone, I'm the prescriber. But that's like an executive order. That's only lasts as long as that, that person is the medical director. And it only works if your medical director is... Uh, a licensed physician. If it's if if not, that's that's a problem. So that's a workaround. Uh, by the way, I should mention that under uh, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act and, and the Durham Humphrey Amendments, um, when a drug is prescription only, that simply means that the FDA has said that this can only be available uh, by a prescription from a healthcare practitioner licensed by the state. Now it's up to the state to decide the scope of practice of each licensed healthcare practitioner. So, um, uh, for example, in some states, they've now, about 11 states, have said we're going to allow pharmacists to prescribe birth control pills. California is one of those states, um, and it's, it, but there are 11 of them. So while the woman now doesn't have to go and sit in the doctor's office for an hour and take time off from work and pay $100 for the prescription, I still have a problem with it because they still have to get permission from the pharmacist, but at least it's eliminated some of the cost and inconvenience, they could, and, and they could go up to a pharmacy counter to, to, to get uh, the birth control pills. Uh, also, um, in California in the last year, uh, the uh, HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, and post-exposure prophylaxis, or PEP, is it now uh, allowed, they've authorized pharmacists can prescribe that. In all the other states, you, you have to go to a doctor to get a prescription for that. So these are just a couple of examples, but uh, it's up to the state to decide what the scope of practice of a licensed healthcare practitioner is. And as far as the FDA is concerned, as long as it is prescribed by a healthcare practitioner licensed by the state, we don't dictate who that healthcare practitioner uh, can be. That's up to the state. So there are... Now, Look Jeff, Jeff, your, sorry, your, your paper is entitled Drug Reformation. So you have described the existing system full of politics, full of non-medical uh, considerations. So in your paper, what is the reformation you call for and what would be the economic and the medical benefits and detriments, if there are any, to drug reformation. What is the headline of what you're calling for in your paper? And then share with us the economic and medical benefits. Okay. Well, in our paper also we go into other areas that need to be reformed as well. But if we stay focused on the prescription requirement, what we argue is that ending the prescription requirement, number one, most importantly, respects patient autonomy and the right to self-medicate. Number two, likely increase patient... Now, when you say ending the prescription requirement, when you say, tell us specifically, I, I, I what would be different? Yourself. 
Yeah, I'll ending the government's this, uh, power to require prescriptions. I, I want to correct myself. Ending the government's Thank power you. to Thank require you. prescriptions. Number one, it respects the right to self-medicate and patient autonomy. Number two, likely increases safety. Uh, number three, will likely lead to reduced drug prices. There's a large amount of empiric evidence that when drugs move from prescription only to over-the-counter, the prices drop, uh, sometimes dramatically. Uh, and, and and so we argue, uh, and, and we can get into that in a minute if you want, but we argue that we need to end the prescription requirement. And then when people say, well, what would happen if the FDA gets out of that business? Well, actually, uh, in, in many ways, you're not going to see a lot of changes because since 1951, there are a lot more complex drugs, and um, the, there's a really like, good likelihood that in many of these drugs, the pharmaceutical manufacturers are going to still require that the pharmacist dispense them only with a prescription because they're going to have not only reputation concerns, uh, but they have liability concerns. So, But uh, on the margin, a lot of the routine everyday drugs that can be moved to over-the-counter will get moved to over-the-counter, uh, especially due to market forces and competition, and that will save uh, people a lot of money. Um, and uh, so you won't, and in addition to that, you're going to probably have more uh, patient engagement in in in, in uh, their self medication. Also, there's a lot of room for innovation. So, for example, it doesn't have to be binary prescription or over the counter. Uh, in many of the other countries, uh, there's a there's a third category, which is uh, pharmacist only or behind the counter. So, for example, um, there are some countries uh, like uh, in in England, you can get a statin drug behind the counter. So that means that you have to, you can't just take it off the shelf with a box of razor blades and band-aids and go to the checkout counter. You've got to ask the pharmacist for it. And the pharmacist has an opportunity to ask you some questions before he decides to sell it to you to decide whether or not he thinks you know what you're doing. And the pharmacist has a right to say, I, I don't want to sell it to you. So that's another option, for example, that pharmaceutical manufacturers will have at their disposal in a in a if we get rid of the Durham-Humphrey Amendment, because they could say, well, this isn't quite tricky enough where we want it to be prescription only, but we'd like some person to be a buffer who knows uh, about this stuff. So we're going to say it can only be dispensed behind the counter by the pharmacist. That's another option. When these things are over the counter, there's so many more innovations that could become available. For example, if birth control pills were over the counter or if naloxone was over the counter, you don't just have to go to a pharmacy for over-the-counter drugs. You can get them at convenience stores, at the checkout counter in supermarkets, maybe in vending machines. They already are making Plan B available in vending machines in many places in college campuses. And, by the way, there are companies now that have kiosks where you can do all your pharmacy at a vending machine. That's already in existence. So there's so much room for innovation, but right now the FDA is standing in the way. You mentioned economics. Tell us a bit about... Uh, the drug manufacturers, that's the starting point, uh, because they can designate, um, they have some say in whether a new drug um, is prescription only or over-the-counter, but they don't have ultimate control. The government has the ultimate control. So what are the economics? And you mentioned lower costs, but tell us a bit more about how that works through the system to produce lower prices to consumers. Okay, um, yeah, there, there are three ways in which a drug can be converted today, under today's law, from prescription only to over-the-counter. One is if the manufacturer petitions that the FDA reconsider it. A two is if any interested person petitions. And three, the commissioner could just decide to make it over-the-counter. And oh, then the fourth way, of course, is Congress could pass a law saying it's over-the-counter. So um, generally speaking, for the last 20, 30 years, the FDA has and this is probably due to a certain amount of regulatory capture, they have deferred to the, to the manufacturer, regardless of what individual groups have petitioned for. And what we've seen is that because ins- health insurance generally doesn't cover uh, prescription drugs but only over-the-counter drugs, that gives a prescription drug manufacturer... No, you have it backwards. I think you have it backwards. Health insurance covers prescription but not over-the-counter. Oh, okay. I thought I said that, but uh, thank you for correcting me. So, yeah, so that gives the manufacturers a great opportunity 
to sort of gain the system. And I can tell you, because as, as a doctor, we do this too, and so do the hospitals. So you got this deep-pocketed third-party payer, the insurance company, or Medicare, or, or Medicaid, or whatever, and the, the drug company charges a very high price, much higher than any individual would be willing to pay. And then, of course, it gets negotiated down to a lower price, and it's still doing quite well. Um, so it, there's been a tendency of late for the drug manufacturers not to want to make it over-the-counter. So an excellent example of this is uh, antihistamines. And this is also an example how uh, prescription requirement doesn't necessarily mean it's safer. So uh, the over-the-counter antihistamines were very sedating, like Benadryl, for example. They're so sedating that the FAA wouldn't allow, to allow a pilot to fly a commercial airplane under the influence of Benadryl. Um, uh, in 1993, Shearing Plow came out with the first non-sedating antihistamine, Claritin. Uh, shortly thereafter, Zyrtec and Allegra came out, same thing, non-sedating antihistamines. These were prescription only. So you had this situation where the, the safe non-sedating antihistamines you needed a prescription for, but the more dangerous over-the-counter sedating antihistamines you didn't need a prescription for. Okay, so meanwhile, uh, Shearing Plow was uh, lobbying the regula regulators in Europe to make Claritin over-the-counter, and it was. So it was over-the-counter in Europe, but it was prescription only in the United States. In the late 90s, uh, some health insurance plans petitioned, because any interested person, they petitioned the FDA to make it over-the-counter because they were spending a fortune on paying out for prescription non-sedating antihistamines, and they wanted this over-the-counter. Shearing Plow actually protested and lobbied against, and lobbied successfully against making it over-the-counter, arguing it's not safe. So at the same time they're arguing to European regulators that this is safe and should be over-the-counter, they're arguing to the FDA that it's not safe and should be prescription only. Why? Because they were making a ton of money on this, as were the makers of Zyrtec and Allegra. Finally, in 2002, um, the shearing plow came up with a new prescription non-sedating antihistamine, and they started thinking with this with this pressure to make it uh, Claritin over the counter. Now is a good time to say to the FDA, "Yeah, we'd like you to make it over the counter because its name ID was so good that it will compete very, very uh, effectively against the sedating antihistamines, and we can make a ton of money on both the prescription." On, the, on a prescription line with our new product about to come out, and on the OTC line with Claritin. So in 2002, Claritin became over-the-counter. In 2007, Zyrtec became over-the-counter. In 2011, Allegra became over-the-counter. But there's a perfect example of it has nothing to do with safety. In fact, the dangerous drugs were over-the-counter, and the safe drugs were prescription only. But there were financial incentives to the pharmaceutical companies to keeping it over-the-counter. The same thing happens with the naloxone. The FDA, for the last few years, has practically been begging the, the makers of naloxone, the opioid overdose antidote, particularly Narcan, which is a nasal spray, they've been begging them to make it over-the-counter. They said this has been around since the 70s. It's safe to use by non-professionals. If you can't overdose on it, if you don't need it, nothing will happen if you take it. And we recommend, we, we ask the manufacturers to ask us to make it over-the-counter. And they're not asking. And then they... Uh, we reached the point where about a year ago, uh, Commissioner Scott Gottlieb at the time said, we don't usually do this, but we're already taking the, going to the trouble of filling out the application for you, and we've uh, pre-approved the labeling that an over-the-counter version of your naloxone would require, and that's usually your job, not our job. All you need to do basically is sign on the dotted line, and we'll go ahead and get the process rolling, and they won't do it. And then in October of 2019, um, I was a participant with another colleague, uh, David Hyman, who's an adjunct at the Cato Institute, at a Capitol Hill briefing in Washington where we were explaining to uh, Capitol Hill staffers why Congress should just pass a law making naloxone over the counter. And, uh, and we talk about this in our paper. The, sales, uh, rep the lobbyists, the sales representatives for the makers of naloxone were trying to contact us before the meeting, and they courted me after the meeting trying to make the argument, oh, no, you don't understand. Um, it's actually cheaper for the people if it's prescription only. And, we, and I said, I'm really curious to know how you could say that. Well, it's $145 for two uh, Narcan nasal spray uh, uh, you know, packets, uh, but you only have a, a $10 copay when you, you pay for it with your insurance. 
whereas it, otherwise it would be $145. And, of course, my response was the people using, you know, IV heroin on the streets don't usually have their insurance cards with them, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and so that's really not a, a big sales feature to them. Uh, but, of course, this is where they were coming from. So um, by uh, uh, taking the government out of this and taking politics out of this, then we allow market competition to, to, to enter the fray. I mean, there's a whole lot of other reforms. This isn't the, the panacea. And in our paper, we actually spend a lot of time talking about other aspects of the regulatory system that need a reform, uh, seriously need reform. But this is an important one, and it's an important place to start. And it will go a long way towards in, improving affordability and safety. In our, and also in our paper, Michael Cannon uh, discovered this by getting uh, data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, here's an example, again, how, how prescription versus over-the-counter and third-party payers plays a role. So even though birth control pills are uh, prescription only, up until the Affordable Care Act was passed, most health insurance uh, policies would not cover uh, uh, birth control pills. So women would have to pay for it out of pocket. And if you look at the data up until about 2011, when the ACA uh, officially went into effect, or rather was passed, um, the, the prices of birth control pills were actually trending down and following the same trend line of over-the-counter medications. And prescription pill prices were also, prescription drug prices were also slow, trending down, but not as rapidly as birth control pills and over-the-counter drugs. Then when the ACA went into effect in 2014 and uh, insurance companies were required to pay for, over the, pay for birth control pills and there was supposed to be no out-of-pocket expense uh, to the purchase of, of birth control pills, uh, not only did prescription drug prices start going up, but birth control pills prices started going up and they skyrocketed. Uh, actually, they went up at a rate three times the rate of prescription medicines going up, while over-the-counter medications only went up slightly since 2014 in price. So what happened was as the, uh, as, as the uh, cost and the feedback loop of people purchasing birth control pills disappeared, became cost was no longer an issue to the consumer, and the insurance companies were picking up the tab Number one, the, uh, the purchases of it didn't really care how much it cost. And number two, the manufacturers started overcharging because they could to the third party. And, of course, not everybody has health insurance, and there are a lot of women, particularly low-income women, who now are priced out of the market for purchasing out of their own pocket uh, birth control pills because of, of the way the prices got up. And what's interesting is, of course, uh, even though uh, one can say, listening to your narrative, that, well, the insurance companies picked it up, but, duh, the insurance companies are determined to make a profit, therefore, the premiums go up proportionately, which means, of course, consumers ultimately pay, but they pay in the in the increased cost a bit of their medical insurance, which means Society bears the entire cost of subsidizing uh, the people who actually use the medication, the uh, uh, prescription, sure. the now uh, birth control. So to say it's like the costs of the drug are now free, of course they're not free, Jeff, as, as you know, but I want to be sure the listeners understood that. That government has right. long since discovered that if they can pass a cost along to business to bury in the, in the price of the product, in this case premiums, consumers don't know that government has increased the cost because it is buried, like sales tax. So nobody is particularly fooled. Now, Jeff, um, we only have a few minutes Minutes, and I'm hopeful in a couple of minutes you can explain another point in your paper about the FDA's role in determining the effectiveness of the drug. It's a big topic, Jeff. We only have a minute or so, but should they be involved at all in determining whether a drug works? Uh, and tell no. us in, in about a minute, Jeff, how silly it is, because once a drug is approved for one use, it's approved for any use anybody wants. 
Yeah, I have to be real quick, but that basically is the result of the Keith Alver Harris amendments to the SDA Act. That was in 1962. Uh, there was a, a drug that was not yet approved by the FDA, uh, thalidomide, which was being given out uh, to women, prescribed by doctors, without them telling them it was experimental, for uh, pregnancy, nausea of pregnancy. And uh, it caused terrible birth defects. So Congress swung into action. They said, okay, from this point forward, not only are we tightening up the safety requirements, but we're now going to require that you prove that the drug works, that it has efficacy. Now, what that has to do with giving a non-approved drug to people that cause birth defects, efficacy, uh, it was very efficacious. It really worked well to prevent morning sickness. But um, So I don't understand how it got to that spot. But all doctors do, and medical science does, if you look at medical journals and go to medical meetings, that's all we do is talk about efficacy, the efficacy of this drug versus that drug for the treatment of whatever. So by the FDA requiring these trials, these clinical trials that we're hearing about now, for example, with, with drugs for COVID, it, it, it takes on average now 12 years and about $500 billion to bring a drug to market. Uh, and once it is approved as having efficacy for, let's say, condition A, because when you f fill out your new drug application, you have to tell the FDA what you want it to be used for. So once the FDA says it is approved for use for condition A, as far as the FDA is concerned, they trust clinicians to use their knowledge of the research and the clinical data that they're seeing to prescribe it for anything else, condition B through Z. So they determine based upon what they think is the efficacy. So, of course, it begs the question, if I had, why do I have to wait 12 years for, for you to tell me I can prescribe it for condition A when once you tell me that, you don't care if I prescribe it for B through C because you trust my judgment? Why didn't you just tr trust my judgment in the first Jeff, place? Jeff, I, I, I need to interrupt to give one final reminder to our listeners. Okay. Uh, Jeff's paper, his white paper, is Drug Reformation, End Government's Power to Require Prescriptions. It's available at Cato.org. It is uh, interactive. Uh, you will enjoy reading it. You will learn a ton and you will rethink your entire position on how much you need prescriptions to protect you from yourself. Jeff, thank you so much for the work on the paper. Thanks to our friend Michael Cannon as well. And thanks for your contribution this morning, Jeff. Have a good rest of the weekend. Thank you. You too. It's drug reformation. It's cato.org slash drug reformation. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Jeff, and thanks to our friends out there for giving us an hour of your time.